Welcome to the Strength and Dignity podcast, where we discuss Christian lifestyle, scripture, biblical concepts, and hear testimonies from various guests. I'm your host, Kelsey Pryor, and I hope you find encouragement, solid teaching, and thought-provoking concepts here. Welcome to our series on the Sabbath, where, through the course of various episodes, we will be discussing the Sabbath throughout the Bible, Sabbath throughout history, what the Sabbath means to Christians today, as well as stories from people who keep the Sabbath. If you enjoy this content, please be sure to share with your friends. All right, let's dive into the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Strength and Dignity podcast. Today, I'm going to be doing our final episode on our Shabbat series. So if you've been following along, the past six episodes have all been about Shabbat. We talked about Shabbat throughout the Bible, Shabbat throughout history, throughout Christian history. We, um, I interviewed some friends of mine in Jerusalem about Shabbat in Israel. My sister and I talked about our family Shabbat traditions. I did an episode about how to do Shabbat if you are single or in college, and here we are at our final episode, um, how Shabbat is like the future coming wedding feast. So I'm very excited to do this episode because it is something that I've recently been pretty obsessed with um, because of a series of events and that I will be sharing today. Um, So I thought I would just hop right in. So um, the questions I'm going to be answering are, what is the wedding feast? How is Shabbat like the wedding feast? And what Shabbat really represents um, when we think about the coming kingdom? And so um, we're going to flip over to Matthew for a lot of this scripture at the very beginning here when we're talking about what is the wedding feast. So we have Matthew 22, Matthew 24, Matthew 26, a few Psalms, as well as Revelation 19. So if you you are following along with me. Those are the scriptures we're going to be looking at today. Um, Matthew 22, the kingdom of God can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So Jesus is, of course, famous for all of his parables that are sometimes easy to understand and sometimes very difficult. And this particular parable has a lot of different meanings. But I do think it's interesting that twice in Matthew 22 and actually it's Matthew 25, not 24. Sorry about that. So Matthew 22 and 25. He says that the kingdom of God can be compared to a wedding feast. Um, So I think that is worthy of note if you want to read those whole parables. The first one, Matthew 22, is about a king who sends out his servants to invite the guests to the wedding feast to um, decline the invitation. And Matthew 25 um, comes right after Jesus is talking about his second coming, where I don't think the listeners at that time understood that that's what he was talking about, but we now know he was talking about the end times and when he was to return. And he follows that up with, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And of course, then we have the parable of the 10 virgins, um, those who were unprepared for Jesus coming and those who were prepared. But in both times, I just find it worthy to note that Jesus equates the kingdom of God with a feast. Um, Another time that we see Jesus um, at a feast and particularly at a wedding feast is in John 2, the wedding at Cana. And this is really what started my whole exploration into this topic is the wedding at Cana. Um, So to backtrack a little bit here, I um, watched The Chosen. If you are unfamiliar with The Chosen, it is a new TV show about Jesus's life. And it is unlike any show or movie I've ever seen about Jesus before. Um, I wasn't super excited to see another 
you know, portrayal of Jesus's life. I just thought it'd be kind of weird, but this show actually does a phenomenal job. So I highly, highly suggest going and watching it. The particular episode I'm talking about right now is episode five, which is the uh, wedding at Cana, which we can find the corresponding passage in John two. So it is of course, Jesus's first miracle, which lots of us might be familiar with it as Jesus's first miracle, Jesus turning water into wine. Um, But a lot of the significance can easily elude us. I never understood the significance of that passage. Um, until watching that episode, there's something that really just awakened in my spirit to see this person who obviously is not Jesus, but the person who is playing Jesus, um, at this wedding. And it's just really fascinating to see how they imagine him being at this wedding. He's dancing around the tables with his disciples. He's lounging back and drinking wine and eating good food. He's playing with the little kids. He is there for his mom. At the very beginning, it opens up with, they're like, whose wedding are we going to? Like, who's like so important that you would want to go to their wedding? Who's there? And he says, my mother, my mother's there. Like I'm going because my mom wants me to. And so it's just, they, they humanize him in a way that makes it like, obviously he's not fully He's fully, he's fully human and he's fully God. But seeing this, this human side of him was so fascinating. But I also think that what was interesting about it is that it's not just his human side. I think that this is also the side of him that was also fully God. And that this is how he envisions the kingdom being when he's with us um, in paradise. And that this is what paradise looks like. It looks like good food, good drink, dancing, a wedding, a feast. And that is just a side of Jesus that a lot of us don't often think about. Um, And there is one particular teaching that really hammered this home to me. And that was Tim Keller's teaching called The Lord of the Vine. Google it. Look it up. I think it's uh, on the podcast app. Um, The Lord of the Vine. It is a phenomenal teaching on this passage and the significance of Jesus's first miracle that I had never seen before. But I I don't think I would have it would have struck me as much if I hadn't watched that episode before and been actually curious about like they they depict his struggle and his joy very well in that episode. And then the Tim Keller sermon just really brings it home when he describes that the significance of Jesus's first miracle, um, when he first portrays, the first part of his character he portrays when he reveals himself um, as the Messiah by doing this miracle um, is that he wants to party with us, that he is the master of ceremonies and that he wants this party to go on. Like the party would have ended if the wine had run out. The, the wedding would have been just a total bust, but he didn't want that to happen. And so that's why he create he turned the water into wine and felt that it was worthy of his first miracle. And that's something I never understood before, but um, realizing that this is part of a, Jesus' character, the first thing that he decides to reveal when he um, does his first miracle I think the Bible has this kind of theme of we we see the first time something happens and it's oftentimes a prophecy or a foretelling or an, an inkling of what's to come. And so the first time that he decides to do a miracle and, and reveal himself as something, you know, more interesting and exciting and important than just a carpenter from Nazareth um, is at a feast And I think that that is significant because it's a reflection and an inkling of what's to come, that he is the master of the feast, of the wedding ceremony. Um, And he wants us to know that about himself. Um, We can also see multiple um, times that the Bible references 
feasting um, and throughout the Psalms, particularly we have Psalm uh, 63, five, it says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I think sometimes we only think about food when it talks about the gluttons and the drunkards, but there's also multiple times throughout scripture that it talks about good food and good drink as very good things that reflect the kingdom. Um, we also see in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. He equates these um, the the kingdom in tangible ways that we see Jesus throughout the gospels all the time. He, like The kingdom of God is like it's like this. It's like that. It's it, he. All of his parables, mo- lots of his parables. I shouldn't say all. Lots of his parables start that way. And um, this particular one, the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. Um, is something that I like diving deeper into. Um, but we also see the theme of the wedding feast in Revelation. So in Revelation 19, um, starting in verse seven, it says, "Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready." It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. We should be so ecstatic that we have been um, invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. And this is where Shabbat comes in. You might be like, okay, Kelsey, we get it. What the heck is your point? How does this equate to Shabbat? This is where Shabbat comes in. Shabbat is a rehearsal for the wedding feast. So I'm actually doing a new series coming up right after this one about biblical feasts, the seven biblical feasts listed in uh, Leviticus 23. Um, But actually, is it Leviticus 23 or 28? It is 23. Um, Another interesting thing about Leviticus 23, I'm actually just going to turn there and read the first part to you guys. Um, This is the, it's titled the Feast of the Lord, and it it depicts eight different feasts, but there are only seven annual festivals. And so it opens up and says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations that they are my appointed feasts. Six days you shall work shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So he decides to open up this um, depiction of these seven biblical feasts that I'm going to be going into detail on later by talking about the Sabbath, which is not an annual feast. It is a weekly one. And so that brings uh, it, it brings the question forth. What does Shabbat represent that we are supposed to celebrate it every week instead of every year? Because obviously the biblical feasts are also important, but they're only once a year and Shabbat is every week. So what's the difference? Um, One of the biggest differences, I think, is that when you look at the seven feasts, four of them happen in the springtime and three of them happen in the fall. The four that happened in the spring were actually prophetic foretellings of Jesus' first coming, um, which I'm going to go into detail again on my next series, if if that confuses you, if you've never heard that before. But the easiest one to talk about is Passover. Passover is when they would slaughter a lamb um, that would whose blood would atone for their sins. Obviously, that was a prophetic foretelling of Jesus dying for our sins, spilling his blood for our sins. Um, but then we have the three fall feasts. And these are prophecies not yet fulfilled about Jesus' second coming. And so that's why the fall feasts are my personal favorite. But um, 
when we look at Shabbat and we're, we look at what it represents in Exodus 20 and I believe Deuteronomy 5, when it lists the Ten Commandments, it lists the sh- Shabbat as um, remember that the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt. And that was basically what Shabbat was for, is for remembering that Jesus brought the Israelites out of slavery. He was worried that when this next generation comes, they will forget what it was like to be slaves in Egypt and they will forget that the Lord delivered them as they did. But that's what Shabbat was originally set up for, is for remembering the slavery of the Israelites in Egypt and how the Lord specifically, not just remembering the slavery, but remembering that the Lord delivered them. Um, As believers today, we can still do that. Even though our ancestors might not have been enslaved in Egypt, we personally were slaves to sin. This is something that our family used to say at every time we had this chest that my dad would bring out that had our candle in it and it was locked shut. And he would say, what does this box represent? And we would say, locked away in slavery. And he would say, slavery to what? And we would say, sin. And then he would open the box. We were freed from our slavery and brought out the candle of Shabbat. So um, something that Shabbat represents is remembrance. We're supposed to remember that we were slaves to our sin and that Jesus set us free. And it's important that we have something in place to help us help remind us of that every single week. But then we can also say that Shabbat is a prophetic foretelling of what's to come. It is something that we look forward to, just like the fall feasts are something that has not been fulfilled yet. It's something that we look forward to. Um, And that is the wedding feast. Shabbat is a rehearsal for the wedding feast that is to come. So um, let me see here. We have, okay. All right, this is what we're gonna do. I'm going to read these quotes from the book called The Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, If you have not read that book, I highly suggest it. What I started doing um, on Shabbat was I read, it's a very, very short book, but I read a chapter each Shabbat, so it took me a couple months to actually finish it. Um, But it is just amazing writing by a Jewish rabbi about the Sabbath. And so this is not from a quote unquote Christian perspective, not it's not from the perspectives of someone who believes that Jesus was the Messiah, but we still have so much to learn from what he has to say about the Sabbath. And I think actually our view of eternity and our view of Jesus as the Messiah makes his writing even sweeter um, because we have that added perspective, but that doesn't mean that um, we can discount his work entirely. His work is something that we have a lot to learn from. So I have, I think, um, four quotes here from uh Heschel's book, The Sabbath. So this first one, strict adherence to the laws regulating Sabbath observance doesn't suffice. The goal is creating the Sabbath as a foretaste of paradise. The Sabbath is a metaphor for paradise and a testimony to God's presence. In our prayers, we anticipate a messianic era that will be a Shabbat and each Shabbat prepares us for that experience. Unless one learns how to relish the taste of Shabbat, one will be unable to enjoy the taste of eternity in the world to come. Next quote, to observe the Sabbath is to celebrate the coronation of a day in the spiritual wonderland of time, the air of which we inhale when we call it a delight. The coronation of a day as if the day is being crowned That's beautiful. Okay. The Shabbat is a reminder of two worlds, the world and the world, this world and the world to come. 
It is an example of both worlds, for the Sabbath is a joy, a holiness, and a rest. Joy is part of this world. Holiness and rest are something of the world to come. So this kind of goes back to what I was saying about how Shabbat is something that we both remember and have, it has happened and we know about it and something that is to come that we look forward to. It's a foretaste. Okay, and then another part of Heschel's book, he uses this whole chapter to describe a metaphor about a rabbi, but the real punchline to that metaphor, I think, is when he says, the old man, the rabbi, symbolizes the people of Israel who went out to meet the Sabbath with myrtles in hand as if the Sabbath were a bride. So he says that the Sabbath is like a, is like a bride to Israel which is fascinating. So then we go into Exodus 31, where it says, the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and, and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout our generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. It is a sign to the people of Israel. Shabbat is like a wedding band on Israel's hand. It is the sign of the covenant. When you look around and you're trying to figure out who's married, if so-and-so is married, you always look at their their hand right to see if they have a ring this hand I'm holding up this is just a fun ring this is not a wedding ring by the way (laughs) if you can if you're watching on YouTube Um, but Shabbat is like a wedding band on Israel's hand it is a sign of a covenant right when you want to see if someone's married you see if they have a ring on their hand so why should it be any different for Shabbat it is a sign of the covenant that God cut with the nation of Israel. So that begs the question, is the wedding band a symbol on the hand of a non-Jewish Christian, someone like me, who was not a blood descendant of Abraham? Is this still is this still the case for me? And I would argue that in this particular instance, it is. Because as we see throughout Romans, specifically in Romans 8 um, and Romans 11, we as believing Gentiles are grafted into um, Israel, which again is something I could do a whole series about. So sorry to kind of tease these big topics, but we have been adopted into the family of Abraham. And so we are heirs with Christ um, of the of the nation of, of Israel along with Abraham, which is something that we need to be extremely humble in accepting that. Um, but it is it is a truth. So we are offered as a bride to our groom just as much as Israel is. And so in Romans 8, verse 15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So Shabbat can also be a sign um, between us and the Lord of our covenant with him, the covenant that he has grafted us into um, by his by His grace and mercy, grafted us into that covenant. And so this is one of the biggest reasons I think that believers should consider um, keeping a Shabbat is not because of the rules and it's not because you should. Um, it is a very healthy spiritual discipline. I think there's a reason that God wants us to rest for a day because we need it, but also just because of what it represents. We need a day, a day built into our week, our weekly rhythm every seven days that we are actively remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made. And we are looking forward to the taste of the kingdom of the wedding feast that is to come. 
So that's my spiel on how Shabbat is like the wedding feast and how it's a rehearsal dinner. I hope that wasn't confusing for you guys. I know I was kind of jumping all over the place um, and a lot of things I said probably require a little bit more explanation, but um, I hope that you um, enjoy this series on Shabbat, that you learn something and I would love to hear about um, your Sabbath and any questions that you have if you follow me over on Instagram at underscore with strength and dignity underscore. The link is also in the description below. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Sabbath um, and look forward to our next series, which will be on the seven biblical feasts. So I look forward to seeing you guys over there and on my Instagram and have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Strength and Dignity. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you leave us a rating and review. That would help us out a lot with the algorithm so we can reach more people looking for encouragement in their faith journey. Hope you tune in next time.